Section 10 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book, edited by Tom Hook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Key of the Nursery Cupboard, Part 1, by T. Hook. If you open the nursery cupboard, you will see... But before I tell you what you will see, I think perhaps I ought to tell you the whole story. At the time when the old noblesse fled terrified before the first fierce upheaval of that overwhelming volcano, the French Revolution, a Monsieur de Laval made his appearance in the little town of Winchester, in Essex, and put a modest advertisement into the local paper that he was desirous of giving lessons in French, Italian, and drawing. He found pupils and employment at the various schools in the town before long, but not before his scrupulously neat dress showed signs of age and long wear. It was only from this evidence, which he could not conceal, that even Mrs. Martin, the widow with whom he lodged, was able to see how straitened the poor gentleman's circumstances were. Even when she knew it, she found it quite impossible to offer him any show of assistance, for Monsieur de la Valle was not a person to take charity with a good grace. Honest Mrs. Martin was sorely touched to see his little girl. The image of my Mary, Mrs. Martin would say, for the child was often very, very hungry and looked thin and ill. But the widow received a lesson from Monsieur the teacher, for which she did not pay, but which she never forgot. She had asked the child, as it was sitting in the garden under the lilacs, singing some quaint old French song, to come in and have a little of her tart at dinner time. The poor little thing at first refused, though its eyes said yes, it was plain that it acted under orders. But presently, childlike, it found the temptation too strong, and Monsieur passing the door saw it in the midst of its enjoyment of such jam and such puff paste as only Mrs. Martin knew how to make. A few short, sharp words in French sent the little one upstairs in tears, and Monsieur, turning to Mrs. Martin, said that he did not permit Mademoiselle de Laval to accept invitations from persons, and without consulting him. If she required refreshments, she would find them in her own apartments. And he said this, as Mrs. Martin described afterwards, as proud as a nobleman. Where Mrs. Martin had formed her idea of the pride of a nobleman, I cannot tell, for there was nothing higher than a baronet within miles of Winchester, and she knew very little of him even. But if she bought the notion out of her inner consciousness, she was more successful than many cleverer people have been in so doing. Monsieur de Laval was as proud as a nobleman because he was a nobleman, and one, too, with more than the ordinary pride of his rank. The Counts of de Laval, from time immemorial, had been among the haughtiest of the haughty French aristocracy. It was a tradition in the family that when Carlemagne passed through the province of the first count of the name, that noble received him head on head and on terms of the most perfect equality. The rest of the world, said he, 
belongs to you, sir, for the Count of de Laval is emperor here. His descendants have been worthy of the Grand Seigneur, and as proud as of de Laval passed into a proverb. When the revolution broke out, the nobles of the Count's neighborhood enrolled themselves and their retainers, and took up arms for the defense of their property against the mob, and for a time were successful, but the Count was not among them. It is true he had mustered his vassals and armed them, but when he found that the command was to be given to Monsieur le Baron de Villemesnil, he retired in dudgeon. Now, the Baron was a general, a soldier by profession, and the nobles, who would have admitted the hereditary claims of the Count if the country only had required defense, were wisely appreciative of the experience and ability when the question was one of their own personal safety. So the Count de Laval retired to his chateau in disgust. He had troubled himself, he said, to assemble a force for the protection of these others, and they disregarded the honor. Let them guard themselves. For his part, he had no fear for himself. The rabble would not dare to come near him, and in the surrounded country the lower orders had to intimate a knowledge of and too great a regard for the traditions of the Libals. The traditions of the Libals best known to the surrounding peasantry were traditions of ancient wrong and tyranny and injustice. The result was that one night the Chateau de Leval was the center of a fierce and furious horde that danced round singing its fierce song of vengeance as the red flames shot up their lighted tongues to the frightened sky, and a pillar of fire and blood-red smoke rose above the hideous orgy. From that conflagration and the cordon of fiendish savages, not a soul belonging to the de Leval household escaped save the Count himself. He came forth bearing his child on his left arm and carrying his drawn sword in his right hand. Whether it was fear of that glittering skillful blade or some strange impulse of pity and remorse at the sight of the poor child which exerted a charm over the mob, it is impossible to say. But it is certain that the line opened to allow the Count to pass unharmed with his precious burden. That burden, by the way, was more precious than the mob suspected. The child carried and folded in her arms, as she nestled terrified on her father's shoulder, a little casket containing the heirlooms of the Tilipals. The family had not been a wealthy one of late, indeed care less for riches than birth at any time, but some antique jewels of great value had been treasured with great reverence, one of them, known as the Delebal Tupas, being regarded especially with almost superstitious veneration. The Count had been a widower some three years or so. He had therefore preserved in preserving his child and the jewels, at once the hopes and the traditions of his family, its future and its past. What induced him on reaching England to adopt Winchester as his place of abode is not clear. Why he adopted teaching as a professor is less difficult to discover. 
It was the only means of earning a living that was possible for him. He was fitted for nothing else, as was the case with the very many of the French refugees who found shelter in England about this time. Although not personally popular among his pupils, Monsieur de Laval, for the Count changed his name as well as dropped his title, soon became well known in Winchester and all around about as a most successful teacher. His manner was cold, even stern, but he spoke always to the point and so clearly and decidedly that he seldom failed to impress his words on the recollection of his hearers, and he never endangered his authority by allowing familiarity or anything remotely approaching it to grow up between himself and those he taught. His one fault was a hasty temper, but he kept it in great subjection. A stupidity of the most hopelessly crass description could not wear out his patience. Inattention and idleness he was decided with, but they never elicited any token of anger from him. But an apparent slight, the least rudeness or forgetfulness of the respect due to him would make his cheek livid and wake a dangerous fire in his eye. In very extreme cases he had been roused to the expression of his feelings in words. Though passionate and strong, these words never approached vulgar abuse or sank into shrewish invective. But it was universally agreed that it was a perilous work to quarrel with Monsieur de Laval. Even those non-respecters of persons, the schoolboys, knew that, and made quite sure that he was not within hearing when they said, Oh de Laval, and Mosamovstick, that they should not have had the nickname for him it would be too much to expect of human nature. They despised everything French like intelligent young Britons, as they were, but they could not help feeling awe for him, partly on account of a story well known to all the boys of Finchester. There was at one of his schools in the town the son of a poor nobleman who had won for himself a distinguished position in the lower house, and held a subordinate place in the ministry. The lad had been sent to get his education cheaply at Winchester. Now boys, we know, are ardent politicians, the more ardent because, as a rule, they know nothing about politics, and a classmate of this lad's, whose father was of opposition politics, had taunted him with a rumor which he had picked up, heaven knows how. The taunt was a little too sharp for the boy and it chanced that de Laval came upon him as he was wiping away the tears. Crying, said he with a half sneer. In my country, the son of a nobleman does not know what tears are. He called my father names and said he sold himself to the government, sobbed the lad. He did, said the Frenchman sharply. And you, what did you do to him? What could I do, sir? You should have... But I forget, it is only the French language that I have to teach you, was the answer. And Monsieur de Laval went on his way, but the boy said afterwards, I'm sure he was going to say killed, and oh, didn't he grind his teeth and turn white? Winchester, as had been already hinted, 
was not overrun with people of rank, but its inhabitants were a decent, obliging, and well-disposed set of people, as little morally injured by trade as is possible. They were not always cuddling their brains to get a profit out of you, and did not look upon all relations of life as business relations of which a debtor and a creditor account was to be kept mentally. They were very willing to make a friend of the French master, and for the first few years of his sojourn in the town, plied him with plentiful invitations for himself, and still more numerous ones for his daughter. But these were all declined, very politely, it is true, but in a manner which mingled a ton of surprise with a very decided hint that neither he nor Mademoiselle de Laval had any desire to make acquaintances in Winchester. The good people of that town were not disposed to make themselves miserable at his refusal, though they were perhaps a little sorry that they could not make friends with his daughter, who had grown up into a very pretty girl, and was so graceful and unassuming and good that it is no wonder she was sought after. Valérie de Laval herself probably was as much inclined to make friends as the Winchester people, but her father would not permit it. She was taught to hold aloof and decline all advances to acquaintances, just as in her childhood when Mrs. Martin offered her some dainty, she used to say her lesson. No, thank you. I'm not hungry. I couldn't eat it. But just as in those days the big gray eyes used to look wistfully at the tempting bit, so now they showed how she hungered for friendship and the companionship of those her own age and sex. Despite her father's lectures, she found it quite impossible to treat Mrs. Martin as distantly as he wished her to do. Mademoiselle Delval forgets herself when she associates with the widow of a shopkeeper, he would say. So poor Valerie was very solitary, and spent her young days wearily. At last she found a pet, something on which to bestow her affection. It was not a very lovely object, but she became very fond of it. It was a poor cur, a lost and half-starved creature, which had followed her to the door and pleaded so piteously for food and shelter that she had taken it in and adopted it. Her father was far from delighted at the acquisition. Montblou, if it had been an Italian greyhound or a well-bred dog of any description, but this mongrel, Masseri Valeri, I fear you have not tasted this of a Deleval. Certainly, poor Chisin was no beauty. Her coat was long and wiry, and stuck about stubbornly in unexpected elf-locks. She had lost an ear, and one eye was partially blind, and she had, oh, such a stump, such a very abridged stump of a tail. It seemed as if the fates, otherwise exceedingly hard upon her, had mercifully provided against any possibility of her having a tin kettle tied to it. Still. Though outwardly unprepossessing, Shisin was remarkably beautiful, morally. Her attachment to Valerie was a thing touching to witness, but it did not propitiate Monsieur de Laval. Peste, he said, for what are these lower animals made? It is the least 
think that they should be devoted servants of man. He said it in a manner which seemed to imply that since the dog was intended to be devoted to the human race, it was very small credit indeed that it should be so to one of the Deleval family. He perhaps had something the same sort of idea about a canon traditional regard for that name that he had about the traditional loyalty of the lower orders to it, just before they burned his tattoo over his head. However, he suffered Valerie to keep the poor cur, though he made her feel at times that it was retained under protest. When Valerie reached the age of 21, her father made a modest tea on her birthday. They had a tasteful little dessert after dinner, and a bottle of French wine, of which a glass was sent down to Mrs. Martin with directions to drink to the health of Mademoiselle de la Valle. The good woman repeated the toast, but didn't drink the wine, which she pronounced sour as vinegar. On this day, the schoolmaster was laid aside, and the Count of Televal presided at the frugal table, and when he had drunk the toast with great grace and dignity, and Valerie had jumped up and flung her arms round his neck and kissed him, he brought out all that was left him of the Televal states the casket of jewels and his sword. He made a long and impressive speech to Valerie, bidding her remember that she was the last of the noble line, and pointing out to her the duties and responsibilities that devolved upon her. Then he placed the casket in her hand, and making a tender allusion to the time when she wore those heirlooms in safety from the burning chateau, told her the jewels were hers henceforth. There is, my child, another priceless jewel which you have in your keeping, the honor of the Delevals. Guard it well, for there must be a restoration of our rights some day. Until then, you have the jewels and I the sword, and Monsieur le Comte de Leval ungund the flannel bandages in which his sword was carefully swathed, silently imprinted a kiss on the glittering blade and lifted it silently towards heaven. The next day, the schoolmaster was assumed once more, and the nobleman laid by with the jewels and the sword. Not long after this, a circumstance occurred which was fated to influence the history of the Delevals. Valerie, with her faithful Chisine, was walking in the woods not far from Winchester, when the poor dog, strained into a plantation by the roadside was caught in a gin. Valerie was in terrible distress and anguish, and did all she could to release her pet, but in vain. She seemed, having exhausted all means of extricating herself, was lying on her side, panting and looking askance at her mistress, who was endeavoring to undo the cruel wire. Let me assist you, said a man's voice. Valerie looked up and saw a tall, handsome-looking young man standing beside her. She blushed and felt shy. She had little experience of the society of strangers, but the occasion was too pressing to admit of hesitation, so she accepted the offer gratefully. The gentleman knelt beside her and in a few moments had extricated Shisin from the snare. 
The dog, instead of recognizing the services thus rendered, made use of its freedom to retire behind its mistress and snarl angrily at its liberator. Fear, she seen. Is that the way in which you express your thanks? Let me apologize, monsieur, for she seems want of manners. I am indeed indebted to you. That more than repays the little act, I can consent to do without she seen acknowledgments. I must speak to the keeper and tell him not to send his traps so close to the road, that is, if you are often in the habit of walking this way. He said this carelessly, but it was plain that he expected an answer. Oh, Shisin and I come here very often. I am glad to hear it, for when I am at home the woods are a favorite haunt of mine and I may perhaps have the pleasure of seeing you again and giving Shisin an opportunity of saying thank you when her temper has recovered its serenity, which the trap has very naturally disturbed. He was sauntering along by her side. His manner was very pleasant and kind, and Valerie confessed to herself he was handsome and felt he was a gentleman. He on his side was immensely taken with Valerie, who now was a woman in appearance, with a fine figure and a beautiful face, all the more beautiful for the absence of conscious beauty. So they wandered on, and the shyness of Valerie wore off, and the gentleman was most agreeable and chatty, and treated her with such politeness and respect that she felt quite at her ease. By and by, when they came to the high road to Pinchester, they separated. As they were parting, he said, as if a thought suddenly struck him, I ought to have introduced myself long before this. My name is Paul Fern. You probably know my father, Admiral Balfern by name. Valerie had frequently heard of the Admiral in Pinchester, where he was a very great personage being. In fact, the one baronet spoken of at the beginning of this story as the nobleman of the neighborhood. Although young Balfern made no request to learn her name, Valerie felt that she ought to tell him, in her turn, who she was. I am Valerie de Laval, she said, shyly. My father is a teacher of languages in Winchester. Oh, I have heard of Monsieur de Laval often. His reputation as an able master is widespread. I hope we shall be acquainted. Goodbye, Mademoiselle de Laval. I trust this will not be our last meeting. He did not seem quite sure whether she would shake hands with him, but she did, in all frankness. You see, she had had no opportunity of learning the convenances, and she followed the dictates of her heart which was warm and generous and trustful. Goodbye, she seen, but she seen only growled and showed her few remaining teeth. And so the pair separated. Valerie did not revisit the woods for several days. She was afraid that Reginald Balfern would think her overbold, but it must be confessed she felt a strong inclination for a walk in that direction an inclination which, at last, she found it impossible to overcome. Accordingly, 
One day, she and Shisin found themselves once again in Admiral Balfour's plantation. They had not walked far before Shisin sprang forward, barking fiercely, and made a rush towards a gate on which Reginald Balfour proved to be sitting when Valerie came up. You ungrateful Shisin, said Valerie. Oh, Monsieur Balfour, what an ungrateful creature, isn't she? and she shook hands with him. I thought you had forsaken the woods. I have not seen you since the day of Shisin's mishap. Have you been here? No, I have hardly been out of doors since. Ah, you should make the most of this weather. It will not last long. You see the leaves are turning already. Look, they have even begun to fall. We shall have fogs and damp soon when Balfour Woods will not be the best place for a promenade. He fell into his old place by her side, and they strolled along, talking pleasantly. They were quite like old friends now, and by the end of the walk there began to creep into existence another feeling than friendship. Before the threatened fogs and damps came, and while yet the red and russet and gold glories were lingering on the woods, these two young people had met again and again, and their love was no secret between them, though it had never been confessed. That love had become Valerie's life now. All the treasured passion of her nature centered in Reginald Balfour. Her solitary life had not allowed her affection to run to waste. It was hoarded up for this time and this man. She worshipped him, and so, when the moment came, and he asked her to give him her heart, she could only tell him that it was his already, and let her head sink on his shoulder, while, through the mist of the happy tears, all golden dreams of bliss and peace and content floated before her eyes. It had not been with any intention of concealment originally that Valerie had not told her father of her acquaintance with John Bonfern. She did not tell him of the first meeting, because she fancied he might become alarmed at her solitary walks and forbid them, and because she did not wish to cause him anxiety. By and by, when her heart became the shrine of a deep and earnest love, the subject was too sacred to be spoken of, and now when the love was confessed, and she and Reginald had plighted faith, she learned that there was a reason for continuing her silence. The admiral, Sir Matthew Balfour, was a specimen of the old school of naval officers, a man full of strong prejudices, quick-tempered, obstinate, domineering. He ruled his household as if it had been a man of war, and his language and bearing were those of the quarter-deck and among his strongest and most enduring prejudices was a hatred of friends and Frenchmen. Reginald Balfern, his son, had been brought up in slavish fear and obedience, as might be expected. He did not know what it was to have a wish or will of his own in opposition to his father until he met Valerie, when love as usual broke down all barriers. But Reginald still stood in terrible awe of the admiral, and dreaded, above all things, that he should learn how his son was paying attention to a Frenchman's daughter. 
Above and beyond this, Reginald was selfish, irredeemably selfish, and if he feared to disobey his father by force of his education in the dread of his wrath, he also was anxious not to suffer the consequences of that disobedience, for the old man's first threat on every occasion was to cut him off with a shilling and leave him a beggar. There was, under these circumstances, a very powerful reason for his trying to conceal his attachment for Valerie. His father had been married a second time to a widow with two grown-up daughters, and there was no love lost between him and his stepmother, who was very anxious to contrive the usurpation of his place in his father's affections by her daughters. The old gentleman, however, had his family pride, and there was no fear of Reginald's being superseded, as long as he did nothing to bring himself into disgrace. He laid all this before Valerie and begged her to keep her engagement a secret, which she readily consented to do. He was hers, that was enough. She was content to wait patiently for years, calm in the consciousness of his love. The knowledge of that seemed the perfection of happiness, and she needed nothing more. Meantime, she seen, having at length been induced to overcome her dislike to Reginald, had rushed into the other extreme, and was as extravagantly fond of him. Unluckily for her, she had not the sense to reserve the demonstrations of her affection for the proper occasion, and accordingly one day, to Reginald's horror, when he had driven into Winchester with his stepmother for some shopping, he found Shishin yelping and jumping about his legs with every token of delight and friendship. The next time he met Valerie, he told her of this unfortunate indiscretion of the dogs. You must get rid of the dog, Bally darling. Lady B is as keen as a needle, and if she had seen Shisin with its owner would have made dangerous conjectures. Shisin must go. Valerie's eyes filled with tears at the thought, and she pleaded for her favorite to whom she reminded Reginald, the older acquaintance. But Reginald's safety was concerned, and therefore Reginald had no mercy. Valerie was ready to sacrifice anything for him. So devoted and blind was her love. So poor Shisin was handed over to Mrs. Martin with orders that she should be given to someone who would be kind to her. And Valerie, being questioned as to the reason of her parting with her pet, said that it was because Papa did not like dogs and Shisin annoyed him much, though he would not say so. But Shisin was not so easily to be got rid of. She returned from her new home so often that at last it became necessary to try and send her away to some distance. She was given to a bargeman who was going up the canal with orders to keep her tied up for two or three days, but even this was not successful. Within a week after her departure, Shisin was back again, half-starred and travel-stained and ready to drop with fatigue. Valerie was so touched by this fidelity that she could not find heart to send the dog away again, 
and when next she met Reginald, tried to obtain a reversal of the sentence of banishment. She learned, however, that on her way home this last time, she seen had passed by Fern House, had recognized Reginald at a window which opened on lawn and had rushed in and covered him with muddy caresses, to the great astonishment of the family who were at breakfast. He had been obliged to order the servants to drive her away with whips to her other bewilderment. This had sealed her fate. Reginald told Valerie that a friend and brother officer of his was about to sail in a few days and would take Chisine on board and thus forever bear her beyond reach or mischief. Valerie sorrowfully consented and took a farewell of her old favorite and Reginald carried Chisine off with him and going to the river after he parted from Valerie, tied a stone around the poor dog's neck and deliberately drowned it. A few days later, Valerie, walking on the banks of the Vin, saw the bloated but still recognizable corpse of poor Chisin aground in a creek. It was a warning, but a vain one. She did not for a moment suspect Reginald. And thus time glided on, and Reginald and Valerie met frequently and forgot, in the idle purposeless dreaming of love, the stern necessities of real life until one day the former learned from a letter written by a friend in London that he would soon be recalled to his ship, which was to be ordered to join the fleet. Then the two young people were obliged to look this actual world in the face, and each looked at it from a different point of view. Valerie was heartbroken at the thought of Reginald's leaving her, and leaving her to face the dangers of war but beyond that she thought of nothing. Reginald, on the other hand, felt anxiety, chiefly because he feared that in his absence some other might step in and carry off Valerie, and yet he dreaded to discover their love to his father. The only possible way by which he could secure Valerie, and yet not endanger his position with his father, was a secret marriage. To this he hardly dared to hope that Valerie would consent. He formed his opinion partly, it is true, from his knowledge of Valerie's character, which was too noble and too frank to deal readily in concealment and evasion. But we know that love, though it often enhances our virtues, can, when needful, make us consent to minutes we should not remove in our sober senses. Reginald's chief reason, however, for supposing that Valerie would refuse to marry him secretly was the consciousness that he himself, in a like case, would hesitate before making such a bad bargain. He judged of her by himself, and he was wrong. She loved him far too well not to condescend to the measure he proposed, and she never thought of herself. For her part, she could have trusted him and hoped and waited on, but as he wished to make her his wife, she was ready. She must be his wife. She could be no others. What did it matter whether it was now or in a few years, if it was publicly known or a secret like their love? The Delevals belonged to the old Huguenot nobility. 
So there was no difficulty in the question of religion, and Reginald speedily found means of making Valerie his bride under circumstances of the utmost secrecy. His departure was unexpectedly delayed longer than he anticipated, his vessel having been detained to form part of a convoy. Before he left England, his wife confided to him the tender news which should make a young husband's heart so full of joy and pride and happy solicitude. But Reginald was only rendered anxious and terrified. He once again bound Valerie by the most solemn obligations not to reveal their marriage to anyone under any circumstances. It was impossible that he did not see what misery unspeakable this must entail upon her, but it was not in his nature to consider how great were the sacrifices he exacted, provided only that he was ensured against discomfort or loss. It was rather to prepare against any extremity which might endanger his secret than with a desire for her well-being and peace of mind that he gave Valerie the address of his old nurse, who was a pensioner of the family, living down by the sea coast in her native village. In any difficulty, he told Valerie to write to her. In a few days, he had sailed. Poor Valerie, so young! so inexperienced, so innocent. She little knew of the terrible consequences of her promise. It was only one sweet hope that she saw of the future. The dark, terrible side was disregarded, but the day of anguish and trial and tribulation came at last. It is impossible to describe the horror and anger of Monsieur de Laval when he discovered as he believed the shame which had fallen on his house. Wretched girl, how long is it since I told you that the honor of the house of the Delaval was in your keeping? Poor Valerie, who had sunk into a chair at the first outburst of the storm, could only rock to and fro with a low moaning. She had of late begun to dread this, but she never thoroughly realized it until it came. What have I done, said the old man firstly, that this dishonor falls upon me in my old age, that my gray hairs are disgraced? Mon Dieu, what have I done to deserve this? As he glanced upwards, defiantly almost, his eye caught the sword which hung over the mantelpiece. He snatched it down and tore off the covering. True, you are my friend. I know my duty. Then turning to Valerie, he said in a harsh, hoarse whisper, his name. But she only stretched out one hand deprecatingly and sobbed as though her heart were breaking. Miserable creature, it is not enough that you have brought shame upon me. No, no, I have not, father, was all she could find strength to utter. Liar, as well dishonored, you have lost forever the good name of the Delavals which was entrusted to your keeping. Tell me his accursed name, that I may wash out this stain in his blood. No, no, it cannot, it must not be, I am innocent. You persist in your falsehood, you are certainly not a Delaval, 
Adelibald never lies. But his name, his name, by heaven I will have his name. He caught her by the wrist with his left hand and shook her fiercely. His name, his name. Never, she gasped. The brutality had roused the spirit of the daughter. She faced him now as bold as himself. He paused for a moment, looked at her with a gaze of concentrated rage and hate, and then flung her over him. Mon Dieu! Lost! Lost to everything! Nameless! Shameless! Abandoned! Go! Leave me! Out of my sight! Let me never see you again! And you! He looked at his word. Once guardian of the honor of my race, your task is done. I am an old man and must die soon, and the honor of the Delevals is departed. Your mission is at an end. There is no more need for you. My heart is broken. Break you, too, spotless blade. Break! He placed this word across his knee, a snap, a tinkling clash, and he flung the broken weapon from him, sank into a chair, and burst into an agony of tears. Then all Valerie's anger melted away, and she stole up and tried to soothe him. But at the first touch of her hand, he shrank back and sprang to his feet. Touch me not! Your touch is defilement, disgraced, dishonored, shameless wanton. Go, I say. Leave this roof. You are no child of mine. Go! He whipped her off fiercely. His voice choked. He staggered a moment and then fell heavily to the ground in a fit. Valerie rang the bell in terror and sent Mrs. Martin for a doctor. Monsieur de Laval was placed on his bed and before long began to recover, but only to sink into a state of feverish, delirious weakness. Even though the shadow of madness and the mists of half-insensibility he kept crying to them to take Valerie out of his height, she left the room at last, for the doctor said his patient would be no better while she stayed there. Then she seated herself on the threshold outside the bedroom door and listening, weeping bitterly but in silence. She could hear him still moaning, thrust her from my roof. Shame, shame! And he continued complaining thus until the opiate which the doctor had administered began to take effect, and he fell into an uneasy slumber. The doctor, coming out of the room at last, almost fell over Valerie, who, exhausted by her emotion and the terrible anxiety of the scene she had gone through, had sunk against the doorpost almost swooning. She asked the doctor faintly if her father was better, out of danger. Yes, I trust, madame, said he very stiffly. He was a harsh man and very cold, but I cannot answer for his life unless my orders are obeyed. Your presence will endanger his recovery. You must not go near him. And he went away without even wishing her a good morning. Mrs. Martin, too, was very frigid and would hardly speak to her. It almost broke poor Valerie's heart to find everyone shrinking from her. What was she to do? 
This was no longer a home for her. She must find a shelter elsewhere. So she packed up her few clothes and trinkets and determined to go to her husband's old nurse. For a long time she was uncertain what she should do about the jewel casket. It was hers, she felt, and she had done nothing to forfeit it. By and by, when her husband came home and claimed her openly as his wife, she could return to her father and say, I have kept all the jewels of the Delebals, and that priceless jewel, our honor, take me back to your arms. Yes, she would retain the casket. If her father was angry at her doing so for a while, he would know all before long. She stole into his room to take one last look at him before she went away. He was sleeping calmly now. She crept to the bedside kissed his hand and bathed it with tears. As she did so, she heard him murmur, Lost, lost, take her out of my sight. Even in his dreams, this terrible mistake was haunting him. It was like a staff to her poor heart, and she hurried from the room. Reginald, dear Reginald, husband, what am I not suffering for your sake? It had, indeed, been a painful struggle, but Valerie was determined to keep her solemn promise to her husband. She knew that if she told her father and tried ever so hard to convince him of the necessity of keeping the marriage a secret, he would refuse to do so. He would not understand how anyone could feel dishonored by an alliance with the Delebals, and he would not consider that her husband's interests were at all comparable with the necessity for guarding the name of the Delebal from even the shadow of suspicion. End of section 10